Acts uh, chapter 13. That's uh, where we're going to be this morning. We're gonna, I'm going to pray for us in a minute. Uh, this is quite a long passage. We're going to be looking at, uh, at, a, at a whole sermon that Paul preaches, but we're going to break it up. So I'm not going to read like we normally do the whole passage. I'm going to read and we're going to look at something and read and look at something um, and make our way through it like that. So before we read from Acts 13, let's, let's pray together as we, as we come to God's Word now. Father, we, we thank you that we, as we come uh, week by week to sit under your word and to, to look at it, to listen to it, uh, you show yourself um, faithful again and again um, to do what you said that you would do. You said you would um, send the Holy Spirit who would be uh, our teacher, who would reveal Jesus to us um, and remind us of truth and lead us into all truth and and that's what you do week by week you open up our eyes and you teach us by the spirit and you shape us through your truth and so we pray again and this morning as we come to your word that that you would do that again just quite simply that father you would send the holy spirit as our teacher amongst us that you would open up our eyes to see and our ears to hear that you would soften our hearts we we pray maybe particularly this morning you would give us an attentiveness and even as we're tired an attentiveness and a sensitivity to your presence amongst us. That, that there's work that you want to do in us and amongst us this morning that you prepared in, in advance today. We pray we'd miss none of what you want to do in us and amongst us this morning. And so we pray, Father, that you would speak now. We humble ourselves under your word. We pray that you would glorify yourself now through the preaching of your word in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Acts 13, we're going to just read the first couple of verses. Um, who's on the slides there? Sorry, Craig, you're going to have to be on your A-game this morning uh, navigating these slides. Acts 13, we're reading from verse 13. Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia, but John left them and went back to Jerusalem. They continued their journey from Perga and reached Pisidian Antioch. First break. All right, I know we didn't get very far. And if you read this and you've read it before, you're thinking, why on earth are we stopping now? Like nothing's really happened. There's no sermon yet. This is just information. It's not just information. I think this is massively important. What I want us to look at before we look at the sermon is, is the mission of these guys getting to what's called Pisidian Antioch, which is the, if you remember last week, I should hand out chocolates on Sunday mornings, especially Sunday mornings like this, if you get answers right. Like where were they on their missionary journey last week? Does anyone remember Someone almost said Cyprus. Well done, good, excellent. Uh, they were in Cyprus and they left Cyprus and they sailed here. It says they sailed from Paphos, came to Perga in Pamphylia. So they basically just went north. From Cyprus, they went north and landed there. It says they went to Perga um, and then they continued from Perga to Pisidian uh, Antioch. Now, I don't want to just give you a history lesson, but this is, this is important um, because I think it teaches them stuff teaches us stuff you can gloss over this and just think this means nothing let's get to the action uh, and the sermon um Pisidian Antioch was about 160 kilometers across a massive mountain range called the Taurus Mountains and this is not a picnic this is not like a, a casual little oh let's go over there um I think the point that if the original readers are reading this they're thinking they went where the, oh my gosh you know and 
Again, you can read this in your own time. You can go and read commentaries. I know you all read Bible commentaries um, during the week. Uh, but uh, when something skips over in Scripture, it's almost worth noticing. When they're on a missionary journey and it says they came to Perga and then they went. So nothing happens in Perga. Nothing happens. And a lot of commentators believe that the reason why there's no recorded ministry there is because Paul got sick. Paul got sick. Um, this whole area, if you have a look in your Bible in that map there, where, um, where Perga and Pisidian Antioch, that whole area is called Galatia. So if you know your Bible, Galatians, the book of Galatians, that's Paul's letter to the people in all of this area in Galatians. And when Paul writes to the Galatians in Galatians 4 verse 13, he says this, you know that uh, previously, some translations say, firstly, I preached the gospel to you because of a weakness of the flesh. You did not despise or reject me, though my physical condition was a trial for you. And many people believe that the first time he went to Galatia, now, Paul got sick. He got sick in Perga. That's why there's no record of any ministry. And somehow he managed to overcome his sickness. They don't know whether it's malaria or whatever else. Many of them think it's malaria because of the area there. They somehow managed to get him healthy enough to get him to Pisidian Antioch. Okay, So you've got a guy who's sick. They're on a mission there, trekking 160 k's over a mountain range. That is notoriously dangerous. Guys were robbed, beaten, left for dead in this mountain range. It was a notoriously dangerous part of the world. But they knew that they needed to get to Pisidian Antioch. And you're going to see later on, uh, as we go through this, that the Lord had people waiting for them in Pisidian Antioch. Many who became believers in Jesus because these guys got there. That's why I'm stopping and pausing mentioning this. And you read a small little uh, note there. Uh, Luke tells us that John Mark left them and went back to Jerusalem. It's like, okay, well, that's interesting. So why did this young guy leave them? I think uh, we don't exactly know why, but if you, you'll see it in a couple of weeks' time in Acts. Um, the term they use for him leaving is they des- that he deserted them. And it causes a bit of a ruction between Paul and Barnabas. Barnabas is his uncle, and then he, he bails. John Mark looks at this, and he's like, I'm not sure I'm ready for this kind of ministry. Paul's getting sick. Yokes want to go on a 160k hike over the mountains there to go and preach to some like, I'm going back to Jerusalem. I miss my mom. Uh, you know, I'm out. And he, and he taps out, and he goes. And it causes such a ruction that Paul is like, this clown is not coming with us again. He bailed on us when we needed him. I'm not taking him again. And Barnabas ends up in a future um, journey taking him. But he taps out. I think he looks at this and he thinks, ministry is tough. Preaching the gospel, advancing the kingdom. This, is, this looks like hard work. This looks like a lot of sacrifice. Paul uh, is sick. This is a long walk. I'm going to go back to my mom in Jerusalem. The things I want you to notice is that this, the advancement of the gospel happens through self-sacrifice. It, it happens through sacrificial service. It's never through comfort and ease. It's never through comfort and ease. If you, if you long for a life of comfort and ease, you are a limiting fact in God being able to use you to spread the gospel in the lives of people around you and be part of what God is doing in the nations of the world. The second thing I want you to notice before we get to the sermon is that just because something is difficult doesn't mean that it's not from God. Just because something may be difficult doesn't mean that it's not from God. It may just be that it is from God. And it's difficult. It's it's super tough. What they're about to do, Paul's sick. This is a proper, proper mission, this walk. But what was waiting there, like I said, 
It says, God had those appointed to eternal life waiting in Pisidian Antioch. There are many people who are going to be in eternity with us as brothers and sisters in Christ because these guys were willing to go on that dangerous walk. And God kept them safe all the way there. All right. This sermon is all about Jesus, which is the best kind of sermon. Um, and Paul, as he goes through this, he's just kind of, he's trying to get to Jesus as quickly as possible, which is a good strategy when you're preaching. Um, and he has a three-point sermon. He doesn't actually have a three-point sermon, and this is the distillation of his sermon. But I want to break it down into three points because I think there's a three-part um, focus on Jesus throughout this sermon. And the first point that I think he makes, and we're going to read it now, is that Jesus is the culmination of history. Jesus is the culmination of history. Let's read on from verse 14. On the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading of the law and the prophets, the leaders of the synagogue sent word to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, you can speak. Paul stood up and motioned with his hand and said, Fellow Israelites and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our ancestors, made the people prosper during their stay in the land of Egypt and led them out of it with a mighty arm. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. This all took about 450 years. After this, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man from the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. After removing him, he raised up David as their king and testified about him, I have found David, the son of Jesse, to be a man after my own heart, who will carry out all my will. From this man's descendants, as he promised, God brought to Israel the Savior, Jesus. Paul's not just giving them a history lesson. Uh, it does make the worst kind of sermons. He, he's wanting to remind them. And this if you haven't done any biblical theology, or you don't understand necessarily the big arc of Scripture, this is a great kind of place to start. It's like, oh, that God called this people and that happened. And like you've got in a few verses here the sweeping plan of God to work through one nation to eventually bring about one man who would be the Savior of the world. And his name is Jesus. And, and, and Paul's not just boring them with history lessons. He's reminding them that God has engineered everything in history for the purpose of bringing Jesus through the line of David and into the world as the Savior. Everything. And I want you to remind you of this this morning. It's interesting to study history. I love history. I think it was the only subject at school where I paid any attention. And Bible studies when I became a Christian. That was it. I hated school, but I liked history because it's interesting. And some of you like history. And when you read history and you think back, it can be very interesting. Oh, look at that. Oh, look at that. Oh, look at that. When you look at the, at the record in the scriptures, what you see there is God has always been orchestrating everything for the purpose of Jesus coming into the world. Everything. Jesus is the culmination of history, not just in his first arrival, and it will be in his, in his return when he comes at the second time, but everything points to him. God engineered everything in human history to prepare the way for the Son of God to come into um, Israel, into that land at that time. 
amongst those people for those purposes. Everything, everything, everything prepared and bent towards that. Paul reminds them, he said, he caused you to prosper in Egypt. Their number grew even under massive oppression. Then God busts them out. There's the Exodus, which you just need to read it and be like, that's amazing how God did that. He takes care of them in the wilderness. The translation here says that he put up with them in the wilderness. There's other translations that say that he, he nurtured them. He tended for them like a father tends for a child. And I think that's actually probably a better translation. Uh, that he, he didn't just put up with them. God doesn't just put up with you, does he? No. He tends you and he cares for you like a father. He, he cares for his, his nation in the wilderness. He gets them into the promised land and he settles them and he helps them to overcome all their enemies so that they can take the inheritance of the land. I'm not going to get into all of what that means at the moment now. He sends them judges. He sends them prophets. He lets them have kings. Why? Why is there this progression? Because then then comes a king called David and God makes another covenant with David and he says it's through the line of this king that one day the eternal king will come. And as this king has ruled over you imperfectly, this king will rule over the whole world perfectly for all eternity. And everything is set up. It looks like it's incidental. Sometimes you open your Bible. Tell me this hasn't happened to you. You've opened your Bible and you're reading and you're thinking, what on earth is going on here? What is the purpose of of 2 Samuel or, 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 or Judges? There's some stuff when you read it in Judges, you think, this we shouldn't let the kids read this kind of stuff. There's some stuff that goes down in the book of Judges and you're thinking, this is a bit wild here. People are getting 10 pigs drilled through their heads and getting sawn up and whatever else. And it, it can seem gruesome and it seems incidental. And unless you understand where it fits in the bigger picture, it can feel like you're reading something that's just like, what is going on here? I would encourage you to learn more and read more about biblical, biblical theology so you understand when you're reading in the scriptures where you are in the story and why God has allowed this to happen, this to happen, this to happen. It's preparing the way for what? For Jesus. Everything. Everything. And that's what Paul reminds him as he starts his sermon that Jesus is the fulfillment. Um, he's, he's, the, he's not the fulfillment. That's the second point. He is the culmination of history. The second point is that he is the fulfillment of prophecy. Let's keep reading from verse 24. The rest of his sermon here. Verse 24. Before his coming... To public attention, John had previously proclaimed a baptism baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. Now as John was completing his mission, he said, Who do you think I am? I'm not the one, but one is coming after me, and, and I'm not worthy to untie the sandals on his feet. Brothers and sisters, children of Abraham's race, and those among you who fear God, it is to us that the word of this salvation has been sent. Since the residents of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize him or the sayings of the prophets that are read every Sabbath, they have fulfilled their words by condemning him. Though they found no grounds for the death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him killed. When they had carried out all that had been written about him, they took him down from the tree and put him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead and he appeared for many days to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we ourselves proclaim to you the good news of the promise that was made to our ancestors. God has fulfilled this for us 
their children by raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have become your father. As to his raising him from the dead, never to return to decay, never to return to decay, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure promises of David. Therefore, he also says in another passage, you will not let your holy one see decay. For David, after serving God's purposes in his own generation, fell asleep, was buried with his fathers and decayed. But the one God raised up did not decay. Next thing I want you to see is that Paul is building the case here, saying that Jesus is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. As you were maybe listening to that, you heard it again and again. Fulfilled. Everything that was written, everything that was said, he's making the point that everything that happened with Jesus needed to happen because it was promised and prophesied that it would happen, and it does. We don't have time this morning to go into everything. Um, I would really encourage you, um, to you can do this. There's tons of resources on this. Do a Google search on how does Jesus fulfill Old Testament prophecy, and, and, and commit yourself. Get your Bible out, get a notepad. And just do a deep dive for a couple of weeks on how Jesus fulfills Old Testament prophecy. Write down the Old Testament prophecy and see the New Testament fulfillment. Every little thing that was prophesied. There's no possible connection because it was written so far, so far connected from the Jesus coming. And Jesus couldn't engineer. He's like, I'm going to fulfill all of these things. I'm going to let all this stuff happen to me. A lot of the things are out of his control, even where he's born. They're out of his control, but it's just to show that he is the fulfillment of prophecy. And Paul highlights a few. He says John the Baptist. He highlights John the Baptist initially preparing the way. Even that is a fulfillment of prophecy. It says in Isaiah 40, verse 3, a voice of one crying out, prepare the way of the Lord in the wilderness. Make a straight highway for our God in the desert. John the Baptist is the fulfillment of that prophecy of Isaiah. It is miles apart. Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. Malachi 3 verse 1, it says, See, God says, See, I'm going to send my messenger and he will clear the way before me. Then the Lord you seek will suddenly come to his temple. It's exactly what happened. John comes and he prepares the way Jesus comes to the temple. Verse 33, Paul quotes Psalm 2. We, we, we don't have time this morning to read Psalm 2. I would encourage you to read the whole thing. Read Psalm 2. It's a, it's, a, it's a messianic psalm. It points towards, towards Jesus. In verse 35, he, 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 he explicitly quotes Psalm 16, verse 10. You will not let your Holy One see decay. All the way through his sermon, he's just spitting out that Jesus is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. And I know this morning, for most of you, you're thinking, so what? It's like, can we move on to the next point? you like, this is getting a bit tiresome we're already tired you're making this more difficult than is necessary what i want you to understand is that when paul preached this to jews they knew the old testament prophecies they knew them and paul is connecting the dots for them and he's saying it says it there he is the one it says it there he is the one and every prophecy every mention they're like oh yeah oh yeah and he's like see there see there see there see there he is the one. Because he says at the end of his preach, he says, well, the one coming, and he just says the name, Jesus. They wouldn't have been expecting, they hadn't heard the story of Jesus yet. You have. You know about Jesus. They didn't know yet. They didn't know yet. So they're busy listening intently. It's like, okay, who is this? 
Who's the one who's fulfilling all the prophecy? And he just says, it's Jesus. It's Jesus. He is the one. He's the one that we're here to tell you about today. He's the one who is the fulfillment of all of these prophecies. Third point of his sermon is that Jesus is the justifier of sinners. He's spoken about how all history points to him. He's spoken about Jesus as the fulfillment of these prophecies. And now he zooms in on how Jesus justifies people for their sins from verse 38. Therefore, therefore, let it be known to you, brothers and sisters, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is being proclaimed to you. Everyone who believes is justified through him from everything that you could not be justified from through the law of Moses. So beware that what is said in the prophets doesn't happen to you. Look, you scoffers, marvel and vanish away because I'm doing a work in your days, a work that you will never believe even if someone were to explain it to you. Stop there. We'll pick up the rest of it later. Oh, I'm going to focus on a couple of lines here that are, are very important. Verse 39, he says, Everyone who believes is justified. Everyone who believes is justified. The work of God is to believe in the one that God sent. That's the work of God. God is not impressed with activity. God is impressed with belief, saving belief. God, lo- God loves activity. He loves what we do for him and with him. He's made us partners with him in ministry. But what delights the heart of God is belief. Believing that he is who he says he is and that we are who he says we are. And that we place active faith in him. Belief. Wh- wh- what would you say belief is? I can spit out a whole bunch of things and you can say, well, I believe that. I believe that. It's okay. You know the old chair test? It's a very oversimplified illustration, but if you have a chair, say, do you believe that the chair will hold your weight? You know, some, some people are a bit more nervous of this demonstration than others. Uh, but do you believe the chair will hold your weight? I say, you, you can say that you believe until you sit on the chair. Until you sit on the chair, you have not actually believed. You have to trust the chair to hold you and to support you. If you just look at the chair and say, I believe that chair will hold me but you don't actually commit and sit in it. You have not evidenced belief. And I think there are a lot of people who, if you ask them, say, do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God and the Savior of the world? They'll say, yeah, absolutely. But if you look at their life, there is no demonstration of working out that belief. It's like an intellectual, like, yeah, I believe in Jesus because I don't believe in Buddha or Muhammad or something else. Oh, I don't want to be an atheist. There must be a, you know, the big guy in the sky or something like that. It's kind of like, they tick Christian on a form. It's this kind of quasi-belief. I, I, I think a, a biblical word, we use interchangeable words when we preach here. We talk about believers. Sometimes we talk about followers. And I actually like the term followers almost more. Like, are you a follower of Jesus, not just a believer? I think the two, I don't think you can be one without being the other. Genuine believers will follow Jesus. Genuine followers of Jesus need to believe. You, you, you see it all over the Gospels. There were many who followed Jesus. Many people followed Jesus. Not just believers. Many followed. And every now and then Jesus would teach something. And what happens? He teaches something that makes following him really tough. And what does it say? Many turned away. Like, sure. Been following. This is interesting. Oh, wow. oh, oh, oh. now we've run into something. That's causing me to change the way I think, believe, or act. Or you're calling me to something else. No. And they leave. 
stop following. Following and believing are one and the same thing. So my question to you this morning is, are you a follower? Are you following Jesus in his ways? Not just, oh, I believe. I just, oh, I believe. It doesn't have any actual outworking in your life. Are you following? Are you putting one foot in front of the other in following as Jesus leads? Because Jesus leads and we follow. That's what it means to be a follower of him. He is charting the way. He has lived the life. He's shown us. He's teaching us how to live. And we don't make up our own way. We just follow him. We don't think, oh, I've got a great way to live. It's like, no, no one cares what you think or what I think about is a good way to live. We're just following the way he lived. His love for enemies. His grace upon grace for people. His befriending the outcasts. We could keep going. Jesus is entirely different from anyone else you will ever follow. Paul says, everyone who believes is justified through him. Isn't that a wonderful term? They're justified through him because they couldn't be justified through the law of Moses. What does it mean? It means to be declared righteous in a legal sense, that you're justified, that there's nothing against you anymore. It's been put against Jesus, nothing. There's no lingering debt that you have with God. It is one of the most wonderful and liberating theological ideas that there's no outstanding debt that you have with God. Isn't that wonderful when you sit here this morning? If you, have, if you have placed your belief in Jesus, you have been justified, not because of your works, but you've been justified because of Jesus. You could never get there on your own, but Jesus did it for you, and now there is no outstanding debt that you have with God. He's taking care of all of it. It's amazing. And what you receive there is the forgiveness of sins. That through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. As you could, this, this, for some people, this is like, yeah, it's boring. Remember, believers in Pisidian Antioch, these people, Jews, Gentiles in Pisidian Antioch, they're hearing this forgiveness of sins. So if we believe in this Jesus, we will receive a justification, not through the law, but by believing in him. And as a result of that, there will be a forgiveness of sins. No more sacrificing, no more jumping through these hoops. We will, have our, we will have our sins forgiven. Promise you, there would be blank stares around that place. For some of you, you're just like, sheesh, I've heard this a million times. May it never be that when you hear that your sins are forgiven, your reaction is. Bible teaches that those whose sins are unforgiven spend eternity suffering under the punishment of unforgiven sin. It is everything, it is everything to be justified through him and receive forgiveness of sins in his name. It is everything. If you've experienced that, you'll know what I mean. If you haven't experienced it yet, that's what happens when you place faith in Jesus. Become a follower of his. If there's a warning Paul gives them. I mean, some of these, there's lots of he uses lots of Old Testament quotations as he's preaching, and one of them he refers to here from verse 41 is actually from the book of Habakkuk. He says, look, you scoffers, marvel and vanish away because I'm doing a work in your days, a work that you will never believe, even if someone were to explain it to you. I've heard somebody preach that sermon and get it so wrong. They've read it like, God's going to do something in your, in your days that you won't believe, even if somebody told you about it. Isn't that exciting? And it's like, 
what? This is a direct quotation from Habakkuk. And it's God speaking to Habakkuk and to the people through Habakkuk. And you know what he's saying? He says, I'm going to send the Babylonians to come and carry you clowns away into exile. That's what I'm going to do. And no one will believe it. If you hadn't been there, you would never have believed that God is going to use an evil enemy to accomplish his purposes because his people rejected him. That's what's astounding. That's the thing that like you won't believe it. It's not like God's got wonderful plans for you. It's like God's going to use some unbelievable method to accomplish his ultimate purpose be purposes because his people have rejected him. And as Paul preaches to them, he says, don't let this be of you. As you hear the gospel today, don't reject him. Don't reject him. Believe. Believe so it's not said of you. And the same thing that happened to God's people when they rejected him and they got carried away by the Babylonians. Don't let that be your fate today. Let's keep reading verse 42. As they were leaving, the people urged them to speak about these matters the following Sabbath. After the synagogue had been dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas who were speaking with them and urging them to continue in the grace of God. The following Sabbath, almost the whole town assembled to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what Paul was saying, insulting him. And Paul and Barnabas boldly replied, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first, since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. We are turning to the Gentiles. For this is what the Lord has commanded us. I've made you a light for the Gentiles to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they rejoiced and honored the word of the Lord, and all who had been appointed to eternal life believed. The word of the Lord spread through the whole region. But the Jews incited the prominent God-fearing women and the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their district. But Paul and Barnabas shook the dust of their feet um, they shook the dust of their feet against them and went to Iconium and the disciples were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit you see this as a standard pattern again and again preach persecuted chased out of town but not before many believe and there's that wonderful line there this is all who had been appointed to eternal life believed they'd been appointed to eternal life God had called them God had chosen them send Paul and Barnabas on this crazy trip there through whatever difficulties. They preach the gospel. They tell them about Jesus. This is the first time they're getting to hear about Jesus. And they believe. The news is too good to reject. Some of the Jews reject them. And Paul and Barnabas say, this is exactly what we said would happen. You guys don't consider yourselves worthy of eternal life. You are rejecting the one who has been sent to you. Because you've done that, God is turning this salvation message over to the outsiders, to the Gentiles, to the ones looking in from outside, and they come in, and they it says that when the Gentiles heard this, they rejoiced and they honored the Lord. They're like, we get to be part of this. We get to believe and join in this move of God in these people. As we close this morning, I want to remind you that there is there is no one like Jesus Christ. There is nobody and there never ever will be anyone like Jesus. And sometimes these kind of things can 
not bore us, that's maybe the wrong word, but feel a bit stale and dry. And this is a long sermon, and maybe that one in the book, maybe mine was also a bit too long. And you think, yeah, I want to point you again to him. He is the one to whom all history points. God engineered everything so that Jesus would come at the perfect time. And he's coming back again at the perfect time. Some people think it's going to happen pretty soon. We're not going to go down that. We don't know when he's coming, but he's coming. He's coming. He'll come at the perfect time. Because all history is about the coming of Jesus into the world. He's the one that all the prophecies point to. And go and do the homework if you don't believe me. And allow your mind to just be astounded. You can't make this up. You can't invent this. You can't concoct this. It has to be true. It has to be true. And he's the one who justifies freely and forgives you of your sin. There is nobody like that. We sit here, those of us who believe and follow, as forgiven sinners. Forgiven sinners. Just remind your own heart this morning that God holds no debt against you. You have been tethered to Christ for all eternity. Washed by the blood of Jesus, made clean and pure for all eternity. Not because you deserve it, not because you're good, but because God is gracious. And it is wonderful. We didn't deserve it, and it's secure forever. And that is a message worth climbing over mountain ranges to go and tell people about. Lord Jesus, we, we worship you here this morning. We were singing earlier this morning that you, you're the one seated on the throne. That even now in your resurrected body, you are seated on the throne next to the Father, ruling and reigning, interceding for us. The mission of your kingdom continues to go forward and you wait You wait until your return to come and fully and finally establish the kingdom of God on earth and bring to perfection everything that you have started. But for now, we're so so grateful this morning that, that you have poured out mercy upon us. Father, that you have opened up our eyes, that you appointed us to believe and you've given us grace to receive and to be justified because of the life and the work of Jesus Christ. We sit here this morning forgiven sinners. And we, we, our souls are just delighted in that again this morning. We just want to say thank you, Father. Thank you for not treating us as our sins deserve, but lavishing your kindness and your grace and your mercy over us. You didn't just forgive us our sins, you filled us with your Spirit. And you made us partners with you in your mission. It's amazing that we get to cooperate with you and be instruments of yours in your kingdom work in the world. There's nothing like that. And I pray you'd open up our eyes in new ways to see how you're working and how we can join you in what you're doing. That's what it's all about. That's why you sing, Jesus. Why you have a church to glorify you and your power and your grace. 
And so as we sit before you this morning, we just want to say thank you. And we want to pray for those who may be amongst us this morning, who just like these believers in in Antioch, hadn't yet heard about Jesus, hadn't yet believed, hadn't yet decided to follow. And yet on that day, they committed their lives. They saw that Jesus was worth following. They saw that Jesus was the only hope for the forgiveness of sins. And if there's those amongst us, when we pray, that you would draw them to yourself. Those who you have appointed to believe, may you give them grace to respond to the work you have been doing in their lives and wanting to, to bring to fruition this morning. We worship you this morning, Jesus, and we say thank you. Thank you.